0: A reading this morning is from first Corinthians 6 verses 1 through 8 when one of you has a grievance against one another does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the Saints or do you not know that the Saints will judge the world and if the world is to be judged by you are you incompetent to try trivial cases do you not know that we are to judge angels how much more than matters pertaining to this life so if you have such cases but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. The grass withers and the flowers fade.
1: So you know that Paul knows he's not dealing with unbelievers here, but Christians who are struggling. In the very first part of the, uh, of the, of the chapter in his letter, he says, this is who you are, to the church of God. So you're the church of God in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So Jesus himself is sanctifying your life, called to be saints together. So you are saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So not only are you the church locally, but you're also the church, part of the church globally, the, the little C and the big C church, we talked about that. So this means that they and all who follow Jesus live in a completely different realm Than the world. The Christian is working from a different playbook than the surrounding culture in all aspects of life. So let me just ask you as a Christian, do you understand this? Do you realize that you are not merely just part of this physical world? That you're just not existing here, and then after after all of this is over, that's it, we're done but that you're also part of this spiritual world as well that the Scriptures talk about. And this is what we mean when we say that the gospel changes everything because it plunges us into the depths of God's plan to make all things new. It plunges us into the depth of this spiritual realm that God has called us into as believers. And that renewal that we talk about and that we sang about earlier, That renewal is taking place right now, not only in your own hearts, but in the world around us as well, which also means God's justice system runs differently than the world's justice system, which is why two Christians trying to to sue one another in court was a serious problem for the Corinthian church. Not only were they taking their, their fellow brothers and sisters to court before a pagan justice system that was, for the most part, very corrupt, this was, part, this was also a big part of the reason for disunity amongst them. I'm not sure how long you could stay very unified with somebody if you in, in a church, local church context, if you're suing them, if the person across the aisle is you're going to court with them tomorrow morning. You're probably not going to be the best of friends. And this lies in the fact that they had forgotten who they are. They've forgotten what Paul has told them in chapter 1, verse 2, that they are being sanctified by Christ, that they are the church, that they are the body of believers together. So like a good pastor, Paul reminds them by helping them to see who they are, uh, again, by showing them their identity as God's future community, and how that impacts their present community. So look at verses 2 and 3. Paul says, Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So Paul is giving the Corinthians... a a wild and mysterious glimpse into the future of the church here. Amy read it for us in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, when they talk about the saints that will judge in Revelation 20, this is what Paul is referring to. Paul is saying, you are those saints that will judge the world and will judge angels. Because when God sets the world right... And praise God, that's going to happen one day. He will balance the scales of justice, and he will include those who are justified in that process. So Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you are going to judge on a cosmic scale which strongly implies that the way we deal with our issues within the church should be far superior to the system of justice in the world. Look at verse 4. So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? So what Paul is saying here is that is a, is a status, he's giving them their status that is on par with the status of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul's not just saying, he isn't just telling the Corinthians that they'll have this some sort of, uh, this this cosmic responsibility, but he's truly reminding them of their union with Christ. We, We judge on that great day only because of what Christ has done and because Christ is the judge. So, and because we have that union with Christ, he makes us into that. And so, Paul ultimately here is saying, this is who you are. You are united to Jesus. So Paul is saying, if you're, if you're going to have this sort of cosmic, supernatural standing and responsibility, why would you appoint the world? Why would you appoint someone who has no standing in the Christian church, nor even cares about it, to judge things within the church That can easily be handled by the church why do that and this is what leads paul in our second point to use shame as a teacher so so just we hear we hear paul in verses one through four reminding the corinthians of who they are by giving them this this wild cosmic vision of the future which ultimately reminds them of their union with christ Uh, So he's saying, look, you guys are believers. You guys are Christians. I truly believe that. God God has already done a great work in you through Christ. Jesus is sanctifying you currently. So I emphasize that because of what he does next. Because in verses 5 and 6, Paul uses a, a tactic that may come as a surprise to you because he uses the tactic of shame. So shame is something that is most definitely frowned upon in our modern Western culture. I'm I'm sure some of you even are cringing at the word shame there. And the fact that I'm saying Paul is using it as a teacher towards the Corinthian church. But 1 Corinthians is actually, Paul uses it throughout his letters, but 1 Corinthians is actually the only letter that Paul uh, explicitly states his intentions to shame his readers. So verses five and six, Paul says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers." So like I said, shame is uh, actually is a common method in Paul's writings. Um, the New Testament scholar uh, T. Lee Lau, and I'll refer to him from here on out as Professor Lau, um, wrote a book about this titled, Defending Shame, Its Formative Power in Paul's Letters. Let me just read that title again so you know that it, you heard me correctly. Defending Shame. It's formative power in Paul's letters. Now, shame is uh, something that we do try to avoid at all costs. We don't, we don't want any part of it. We don't want to feel it. We don't want to experience it because we've been taught by our culture that it is always bad to experience shame, always, always. So uh, one uh, therapist, uh, Joseph Burgo, he wrote an article in The Atlantic on on shame and its impact on culture, says this. He says, the consensus within our culture is clear. Shame is a uniquely destructive force and one to be resisted. Movie stars, educators, pop icons, psychologists, and spokespeople for the pride movements will all tell you the same thing. Shame is the enemy. Now, just a side note, because I would argue that those mentioned above uh, would have to retract their opinion about shame as they think about uh, what proper shame looks like, because it does exist in our culture, not just in the scriptures, but it does exist in our culture. Think about how we treat those who uh, abuse little children, pedophiles. We would all agree that they, they deserve some level of shame for what they are doing. Think about those, those men who don't, uh, that, that, for, that don't pay child support, that don't take care of their families. We would say that some amount of shame should be involved uh, in that person's life. And not even to mention cancel culture cancel culture is built around shaming an idea or shaming a person into oblivion. That's cancel culture. So shame is alive and well in in its negative aspects, but also in its positive aspects in our world today. And so in the letters of Paul and in the Bible, shame is often used with the specific purpose of helping Christians To mature and grow in their faith. Paul uses shame, especially here, to open the eyes of the Corinthians of of their, essentially, of their stupidity. Of their their current state of losing their mind. Specifically the mind of Christ. and, And to bring them back from going down a wrong path. So I was reading this morning, actually sitting right there while the worship team was practicing this morning, about an hour before the service, Psalm 44, which was my psalm of the day to read. But Psalm 44, written by the sons of Korah, uh, says this. Uh, I'm just going to read 10 verses. Psalm 44, 8 through 18. Uh, Let's see. So it begins like this. We boast in God all day long. We will praise your name forever. Okay. We boast in God all day long. We will praise your name forever, but you have rejected and humiliated us. You do not march out with our armies. You make us retreat from the foe and those who hate us uh, have taken plunder for themselves. You, you hand us over to be eaten like sheep and scatter us among the nations. You sell your people for nothing. You make no profit from selling them. You make us an object of reproach to our neighbors, a source of mockery and ridicule to those around us. You make us a joke among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. My disgrace or my shame is before me all day long, and shame has covered my face because of the taunts of the scorner and reviler, because of the enemy and avenger. And then verse 17, all this has happened to us, but we have not forgotten you or betrayed your covenant. Our hearts have not turned back, our steps have not strayed from your covenant. So this beautiful example of how God, even, against his own people, is using shame to bring them back to himself. And so in the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul uses what uh, Professor Lau calls uh, retrospective shame, which was, which was Paul explicitly shaming them for wrong they have done, wrong that they have already committed and are still committing. And he does this to bring their folly to the light. And to bring their folly to the light in hopes that they would reform their way of thinking on the matter and change, which is always the goal. So he uses shame as a teacher to transform the the minds of his readers into or back into, I should say, the mind of Christ. Because remember, the the Corinthian uh, Christians are highly influenced by the uh, the culture around them. Corinth was a powerful, uh, large, bustling city with lots of ideas, lots of interesting and cool people, I'm sure, uh, that had good things to say. And the Corinthians were finding themselves being influenced by them in more ways than they probably knew. So much so that they were losing sight of the cross of Christ. And so by using shame, Paul is reminding uh, those in Christ um, should have wisdom, not from the world, but wisdom that is centered on the crucified Messiah. Because in chapter 1, verse 30, Paul tells them, Jesus is the one who became wisdom and was given to them by God. So they have all the wisdom they need to live this life. Because they have it in Christ. So just by way of application, if shame is bothersome to you, shame is actually an emotion. And so just like anything else, like anger or sorrow or sadness or, or even guilt or, or whatever it might be, um, we listen to those things, well, at least I hope we do at times, like why do I get so angry, you know, or, or why am I sad now, why am I crying listening to our tears and such? We need to listen to our shame as well. So Professor Lau says shame is, is two things. He says it's, it's a moral emotion that helps us to discern what is noble and base and provides us with the motivational energy to pursue good and avoid the bad. So it's a moral emotion to help us discern between good and bad. He also says it's a social emotion, which I think is uh, very important to what we see happening in the Corinthian church. But social emotion, he says, is the glue that holds relationships and communities together because it helps us to be sensitive to and to honor others uh, and the norms of the community. And this is exactly how Paul is using shame here. He wants them to understand how to discern between that which is wise and from God and that which is foolish and from the world. He wants them to understand that when they walk in the foolishness of the world that they are breaking apart the community that God is forming around the cross. And so admittedly, the reason could be if you're thinking about shame and you're thinking about um, shame in your own life, it, 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 it could be something shameful that was done towards you. Or someone used shame in your life to assert power over you. There's room for that. I'm not saying that all shame is good. There is, there is shame that is bad and wrong and a sin. And those things happen. And, and that might be something you need to listen to as well. But don't discount that you could also be experiencing shame because you need it to be your teacher as well this morning. Just as Paul was using it with the Corinthians. Maybe you're experiencing shame because of unrepentant sin in your life. And you need to confess that. Maybe you're experiencing shame because you have used shame to shame your spouse or to shame your children or to shame other people in your life. And you need to Repent of that and change. But the encouraging aspect both of, of shame, whether it's bad or good, is that Jesus rescues you from both. He rescues you from both. He doesn't, he doesn't keep the sons of Korah in shame in Psalm 44. They, they are constantly going back to, the, you've done all these things to us, this is how it makes us feel, um, but we still praise you. We have not turned our backs on you. We have not uh, stopped uh, fulfilling the covenant that you have made with us. Because Jesus is the one who has entered into our shame to make us more like him. So, So that we might hear God our Father say to us one day, and I love how Matthew prayed that this morning, that we don't pray to a taskmaster asking for forgiveness we pray to a Father, and one day we hope, all hope as Christians, that one day we will hear the Father say, "Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. No matter what you've experienced, because Jesus rescues us from that. And, and surprisingly, suffering is Paul's solution to this sort of disunity that that he is using shame to to kind of bring to light uh, amongst the believers looking at verses verses 7 through 8 for our third point. Paul says, As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. So Paul never leaves the Corinthians with sort of vague solutions to their problems. He doesn't just go, okay, here's the problem, figure that out. I am done with you guys. You guys are, you guys are a hassle to me. You're annoying because you, won't, you, you just don't believe the gospel, and I keep telling you the gospel. No, Paul, he continues to enter in into, their, into their shame, into their suffering, and give them the right solutions and the application, which is just the application of the gospel. Paul says, for everything, the balm of the gospel needs to be applied. And this is exactly what he's doing here. And so in verses 7 through 8, he keeps this same pattern. pattern. And I know, I already know, that this application that Paul is giving to the Corinthians is going to be a hard application for some of us. So Paul says, so just buckle up if that's you, that's all I'm saying. Get ready. Because Paul says in verse 7, you've already lost in this. You have failed. There's really no trying to kind of repair this on your own. You've already lost in this. And then he follows this up with two questions. And they're this, the same question essentially, asked in different ways Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? And you can almost kind of imaginatively hear the groaning and the justifications from the Corinthians when Paul asked these questions. Just the gasp and just like the how, how dare you uh, coming out of, their, out of their mouths and in their minds. And the reason why we can put ourselves there imaginatively is because they're the same groanings and justifications that you are experiencing right now in your own hearts when you hear Paul say that. Well, you have no idea what so-and-so did to me, Paul. It is, uh, it is unforgivable. You don't understand how what uh, that person did, how it hurt my business, how much money I lost. You don't get how this has affected me and my family emotionally and spiritually and all, and all, all of those things. You don't get that, Paul. My situation is different. But what Paul is doing here is he's giving the Corinthians a gospel-centered way in which to handle something that may seem minuscule to you. Maybe you're thinking, Kevin, that this, makes, this, is, this is pointless. Why would we even address something so small that we can hire a billboard attorney to do for us? Why would we do that? But Paul is, again, just going back and applying the balm of the gospel here and he's giving them a way, a gospel-centered way in which to handle grievances and disputes that do and will happen from time to time amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. It will. It will happen. If it it hasn't happened yet for you, it it is coming. It is going to happen. So when Tara and I do marriage counseling, we always have our couples walk through a book uh, titled, When Sinners Say, I Do. And, and because the reason why we do this, and, and for most of our sessions, like I would say half of our sessions, we talk, we talk to our, our future bride and groom about how sinful they are. I know, it's a really cheerful time. So we talk about that, but, but the reason we do that is because most engaged couples— are in this glazed-over fantasy world that tells them that they're about to marry a perfect individual who is incapable of doing them harm. And, that, and to that we say, along with every married person uh, in the room that has been married more than 24 hours, that is a lie. That's a lie. But sometimes... We carry this same sort of fantasy world into the local church, and then when, not if, when we encounter conflict with another Christian, we're ready to run out the door and find another church and start all over again. Because for some reason we think everybody there is supposed to be perfect. Now for the Corinthians, their solution was to run to the secular courts, to, to do what the culture does is if we, we, if we're, we're going to sue this person we 're going to the secular courts, we are going to sue them. we are going to get what we deserve, brother or sister in Christ or not. But Paul flips the script when he essentially asks instead of running from or suing one another, why not be rather be wronged or cheated instead by these same brothers or sisters. Now, this is something Paul can ask because this is something Paul has lived. Uh, On more than one occasion, Paul has been wronged and cheated, and a lot of those times he has been wronged and cheated by people in the church. So, one example is, is Demas uh, who had at one time uh, been one of Paul's fellow workers in the, go- in the gospel ministry. They were close, they were tight, but Demas deserted him in a time of great need. And so Paul writes to Timothy in, in the second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, he says, Make every effort to come to me soon, speaking to his friends, because Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. And so Paul knows from experience, and that's just one example in Paul's life. So Paul knows from experience what it means to be wronged by other Christians. And his solution to this is not to badmouth them, It is not to try to get even with them. His solution to this is suffering. Uh, or as the author, if you've read the book, uh, or you know of of Paul Miller, he wrote a book called The J-Curve. You've you've probably heard me talk about it before. It's one of my favorite books. But but Paul Miller calls this the J-Curve because, like the letter J, the actual literal letter letter J, uh, Jesus' life first went down into death, if you're thinking about the letter J. There's a downward movement there, and then up into resurrection. And that's the J-Curve. And he writes this, just like the earthly life of Jesus, the J ends higher than it starts. It's the pattern not only of Jesus's life, but of our lives, of our everyday moments. And so essentially what we see Paul doing here is saying, model your life after the life of Jesus. In other parts of the scripture, Paul talks about how we enter into the sufferings of Jesus, how we, how we fill up what is lacking in Jesus' sufferings. And the way that we fill up what is lacking in Jesus' suffering is that we are entering into the suffering of others. And, and more often than not, nine times out of ten, we have to put ourselves into the suffering. Voluntarily, we have to do that. We have to volunteer to lose sleep. We have to volunteer to, 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 to use money that, that could be used for you know, ourselves or for our family or, or whatever on somebody else's needs. We have to voluntarily enter into that suffering. So Paul describes this pattern of Jesus in Second Corinthians 8 when he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, which means Jesus has everything, everything. He's richer than Elon Musk. Yet for your sake, for your sake, he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So, so when, when, it talks, when Paul talks about Jesus being rich, richer than, richer than, richer than, than any of us can even imagine. I can, I'm not even going to try to ex- describe it. But when he becomes poor, he, he becomes poorer than any of us could imagine too. Uh, spiritually physically, you know, in every way, Jesus becomes poor in the depths. He, so he's not, just this, he's not just this rich boy who can just kind of tap into um, the riches of his, of his daddy anytime he wants to. Jesus forcefully and voluntarily makes himself suffer in our poverty in every way. So Jesus in his suffering and death, enters into the lowest point of life on our behalf, which makes us the offending party. He, he does that because we are the offending party. We are the ones who have sinned against God, not Jesus. And I'm telling you, when you, when you can grasp this idea, when you can grasp this, it will change how you relate with everyone in your life. And it's just, and it's such a radical act that not, that not only will it bring unity within the church, but it will also bear witness over and over again to the death and resurrection of Jesus to a watching world. Paul Miller also refers to this as substitutionary love toward each other. So how does this apply in our context? Well, maybe instead of trying to win, and this may be with your friends here, or your spouse, or your children, or whoever it might be, uh, or be right, or get your way, you instead lose for the sake of the relationship. Lose for the sake of community. Be wrong for the sake of that brother or sister. Even if you know you're right, you instead kill your desire to be so. You, rather than get your way, you, you, go, you go the way of your brother or sister, whether you like it or not. So even if it's in a very practical kind of simple way, if they like doing something that you don't particularly like to do instead of just staying home and watching Netflix or whatever it is, enter into that with, with them. It seems silly, but that would be a moment of, of just slight suffering for that brother or sister so that they can experience resurrection in that moment. That's what that means. So, so you, are, you are substituting your wants, your desires, for the sake of another. So practically speaking, maybe, hypothetically, okay? I'm not picking on anybody here, but if you get offended, that's your fault. Um, you're saving up money for tickets to go see a concert. Maybe, I don't know, maybe Taylor Swift, okay? She's in Europe now, so if you're going, man, you're loaded. But, um... But during that time, you're saving up this money. You're so excited. You got your outfit picked out. You know what era you're going to be dressing up as and all of that stuff. A a fellow member is hit with a financial need that only you can meet at that particular time. They don't want to share it with everybody else, but they're close to you, and so they share it with you, and they're just asking for prayer. They're not asking you for money. They're just saying, just pray for me. I have this need. I don't know how I'm going to meet it. Pray for me. So instead of going to this once in a lifetime opportunity concert, you instead give your money to this brother or sister in need. You write that check, you go get that cash out of your bank account, and you hand it over. Now you don't have to you definitely please don't tell them like this is your Taylor Swift money or whatever it is that you know to to shame them in that moment. But just to give it to them, no questions asked. You don't even have to tell them it's from you. So within the context of the Corinthian church Paul is saying you might have every right to take your brother to court. You might have all you might have all of the evidence that is stacked against this brother or sister and you may win. And you would be justified in doing so because they have wronged you greatly. But Paul is saying is it worth the ruin of that relationship? And not only that, is it worth the ruin and the disunity that it is going to cause in the church? And not only is it going to cause that sort of uh, of ruin and uh, disunity, but it's also going to uh, taint your witness to a watching world who is peering inside to say, how do these people live? How do they interact? Is it the same way I interact? Because I've seen a few of them in court, and it seems that way. So in the in the tiny little letter of Philemon, Paul actually um, confronts a man, this man Philemon, with the application of the J curve, this substitutionary love. So Paul, Paul, in his in this letter, and I read through it this morning again, Paul assumes because Philemon is a Christian, because Philemon is a Christian, Paul assumes that he will not only not punish his slave. Onesimus, as Paul is sending him back to him with this letter, Paul is assuming that he will not only not punish this man, but that he would actually allow this man to go free so that he can serve alongside Paul in the ministry. So this was not just simply a man giving another man his slave, okay? It wasn't like, okay, Paul, well, I'll pay his wages and then you can have him. No, Paul was asking this man to to walk through a massive financial loss, upwards of of $150,000 in today's economy. And Paul was saying, I want you to give that up for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of this man who has become a Christian. Because for Paul, the lived-out gospel trumps property rights and for the corinthians it trumps the roman justice system as well because the gospel goes against the grain of everything in a broken world so let me just ask you this question and we're getting close to closing here let me ask you this question what do you need to lose in order to live like this As a Christian, it might might just be you need to lose your desire to get your way all the time or to always be right or to only use your resources on yourself or whatever it might be or your time or, or your energy or whatever it is. If you're a Christian, what you need to lose is your old life so that Jesus can give you a new one. Let me ask you this, what areas of your life do you uh, need to change so that you're ready to enter into the J-curve, into that substitutionary love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you willing to take the hit? Are you willing to be wronged and treated for the sake of another, for the sake of unity, for the sake of the gospel witness in our city? Because remember this, substitutionary love is modeled after the substitutionary love of Jesus. So the goal of this is not just your death, but the resurrection of someone else. And that's the gospel, right? If Jesus died and didn't come back to life, Paul says later, Our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Our preaching is, if Jesus is not resurrected, what we're doing here is pointless and silly, and what you believe about Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection is pointless and silly. Why? Because if Jesus is not resurrected, that means Jesus was just a regular guy. He was just a mere man, and a lot of people actually believe that. But if he wasn't resurrected, he was not God incarnate, And if he wasn't resurrected, that means he was uh, unable to defeat death on our behalf. So we don't suffer for nothing when we enter into this with our brothers and sisters. And the reason we can even attempt this is because Christ has made us his through his own substitutionary love, through his own death and resurrection. So one commentator said this, He said, this only makes sense if you have nothing to lose. If suffering wrong is not an ultimate threat to you, if being defrauded is not a loss to you, suffering wrong and being defrauded are not ultimate grievances because Christ bore the ultimate grievances in our place. And so he suffered ultimate wrong. So you wouldn't have to and because he absorbed all of this when others do the same to us and like i said they will we can in turn show them the same grace that jesus has consistently shown towards us so all of this combined all three of these points combined paul that paul is using to remind them is to remind them that the gospel does actually change everything and this is what transforms us as Christ the King Church into a unified community in a fractured world. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are, we are thankful that we are not uh, living this life on our own, we are thankful that we don't have to come up with, uh, with the answers every single day for every single moment um, because we know that the balm of the gospel is always the answer. <clears throat> in whatever situation we're in, whatever we're walking through, um, even, even if, the, even if the, the, the clarity is not there yet or we're just walking through the fog and we don't understand what you're doing in our life, the balm of the gospel is still there. And so I pray that as a church, that the gospel would be our culture. It would be what we swim in. It would be what consumes us. It would be what what enters into our relationships and our our heartaches and our sorrows. And it would allow us to be wronged and experience injustice on the behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ for the sake of unity around the gospel. So God, I pray that you would do that so that we would not only bring you glory, but that we would bring you glory to a point where others are looking in and saying, I want that. Something's different there. It's not perfect, but something is different there. And I want to experience that. So, Father, I pray that you would do that in our midst. And we pray all this in the name of Christ, who makes all of this possible. Amen. So instead of making the awkward march down the stairs and around, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do our communion liturgy from up here. Uh, it'll be behind me here.